Unfortunately, you're stuck with me this week. Laura sends her greetings. She's uh, come down with a bad cold, so uh, she uh, sends her love and greetings. Uh, last week, we talked a bit about um, anxiety and um, thinking about dealing with uh, various experiences that we might, ex- uh, various practices that we might experiment with. I apologize. I, was, I, I promised an email that I failed to get out, so uh, my apologies. So I hope that did not ex- um, mean that the level of anxiety was much higher this week than it would have been otherwise. Um, but some of the, let me just very quickly run over some of the practices I suggest, and let's hear from me. If anybody happened to experiment with any of these this week, I'd be interested in hearing. Um, the first one was suggested, if, you, if you're aware of having unresolved childhood stuff, begin trying to make, maybe lean into ways of dealing with it through, uh, through counseling, through recovery work, through spiritual direction, or, or whatever the case may be. Second, um, trying to practice the acceptance of when, when you're worried about something, practice the acceptance of the worst case scenario and then work to make it better off of the worst case. Third, we suggested uh, practicing again, just staying in the moment, being where your feet are, being mindful of what's around you, breathing and so forth. Fourth, more particular breathing exercises. We talked about uh, square breathing that's taught to people like on SWAT teams to keep them very calm in the moment. We talked about, um, I was about to fall asleep on uh, Sunday night, and I said, oh, I said, my, I said my formula wrong. It's not x, 2x, 2x divided by 2, and, and it's x, 2x, x plus 2x divided by 2. <laughs> and Laura said, oh, they'll really think you're stupid because you didn't say that right. <laughs> um, but anyway, you know, you breathe in for six seconds, you hold it for 12 seconds, you breathe out for nine seconds, um, and do that about 10 times, do that five to 10 times, and then let your breathing return to a normal kind of pace through your nose, uh, has a, a way of getting you into an alpha brainwave state. Uh, fifth, um, various things we're learning from positive psychology about sociability, about exercise, about diet, just very basic things of taking care of ourselves uh, that improve our emotional stability. Uh, next, we talked about practicing kindness and helpfulness and what a, what a simple way there is to, to get us out of ourselves and get us out of our anxiety of just paying attention to the people around us and practicing kindness. And last, practicing the art of good enough. Um, that I don't, uh, that me doing the 30 minute walk to school is better than the two and a half mile trail run I didn't do today. Right? So do what's good enough and uh, learn how, if, if something is worth doing, is another one I like. If something's worth doing, it's worth doing imperfectly, right? Uh, it's really important to remember. Now, if you're if you're if you are lazy by nature, then that might not be good wisdom for you. But if you're the anal overachiever type, then remember, if it's worth doing, it's worth doing imperfectly. And and then finally, last observation we noted was: do remember that there's a difference between you stress and distress. <coughs> that stress is, is actually helpful to us in getting things done. Uh, so it's not the notion that we want to be completely free of any sort of stress, but figure out how we best work with stresses that are upon us. So with all of those, that quick uh, reminder, anybody uh, practice any of this stuff or anything else you did this week to kind of help you with anxiety or dealing with worry? Or you all just a bundle of nerves always. I just made myself get outside. Get outside, great. Yeah. There's a study. I don't know if I mentioned this last week. I, I read this fascinating study a couple of years ago that 
They studied people who were recovering from surgery, uh, people who had windows that could look outside upon greenery versus those who did not, and those who can look out on greenery, all other variables being equal, they recover more quickly if you, if you have an outside view. Uh, so there's lots to be said for simply getting outside and, and, and breathing. Great. Somebody else? My daughter is very black and white, and she is already a perfectionist at age eight, and um, she is so concerned about bad words. And I don't know where this, this like, I mean, like not like we're going around cussing in my house all the time or anything, but she you is can like. send her to my house. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so, but she is so concerned about hearing a bad word. Like in, like in, I mean, we listen to the Hamilton soundtrack all the time. I mean, it's not like she's, I mean, but she's so concerned, and so I used the worst case scenario with her the other day. I was like, what, what do you think is going to happen if you hear a bad word? Hmm. Like somebody on the playground accidentally said a bad word, and she ran, like ran as far as she could away from this person because this person is, and it was like the big, like she got in the car, <gasps> like somebody had said a bad word. Oh my gosh, she's just so, and I said, what's the worst thing that's going to happen? I said, did that make that person a bad person? And she said, no. I said, is that still your friend? Yes. I said, like, do you think God's mad at you that you heard? I mean, and like we went, and by the end, she's like, okay. Like, not that that's, but it, I was like, it worked for that moment, like, to be like, you know what? These things are going to happen, and you're going to be okay, and you're not going to, like, burn forever because you've heard somebody on the playground <laughs> say a bad word. <laughs> very interesting. Yeah, thank you. So that's, that's good. Maybe she may she'll grow up and not be as stressed as, yeah. like, anxious yeah. as I am if I get to see those things. Great. Thank you. So my else, one more. Have you heard Ian um, Cron talk about his SNAP no. recommendation, uh, SNAP acronym, which actually is very similar to kind of what um, Emily was talking about, is stop, notice, ask yourself what you're doing and what things you're believing about your, the situation or yourself right now, and then pivot to something that you know is truer. Hmm. And so just that practice of having the self-awareness to stop in a moment that you feel some stuff that is taking over you, anxiety or stress, and then going through that step-by-step -step process to me seems really, really helpful. That's a very helpful. Snap. Stop. Notice. Ask. Ask what you're dealing with or processing and pivot towards something truer or healthier. Yeah, great. Thank you. Well, um, now we try to help calm some of your anxiety. Um, today's a day to ramp it up a bit. Um, there's, a, you know, the old phrase uh, among seminary professors to advice to young homileticians that uh, your task, they say to young preachers, is to comfort the afflicted and to afflict the comfortable. <laughs> and there's something true about that, I think. And um, I, I was... Um, as we're working with these various wisdom literature texts, um, one of my concerns about the title of our class on flourishing is its possibility for misinterpretation. And one of the ways in which flourishing has been misinterpreted in the Christian tradition is a oversimplistic reading of flourishing. That is, um, you can read, as we'll look here in a, in a few moments, at some of the Proverbs. Well, let me just, let me just start with one. Let's, um, uh, 
look at um, chapter 9. Uh, chapter 10, verse 15. The wealth of the rich is their fortress. The poverty of the poor is their ruin. Or verse 22. The blessing of the Lord makes rich, and he adds no sorrow with it. Or chapter 12, verse 11. Those who till their land will have plenty of food, but those who follow worthless pursuits have no sense. Or chapter 15, verse 6. In the house of the righteous there is much treasure, but trouble befalls the income of the wicked. Or chapter 20, verse 4. The lazy person does not plow in season. Harvest comes and there is nothing to be found. And we can multiply these. I didn't find it this morning, but there's the one I for, the two that I particularly like out of the book of Proverbs is that um, uh, the lazy man has the leaky roof and the sluggard is so slow that he does not even get his hand from the dish to his mouth. What a classic. Isn't that great? <laughs> Over and over again, the Proverbs say things like, you work hard, you're going to get good stuff. If you're righteous, you're going to have wealth. If you're a good guy, good stuff's going to happen. And we've talked about how there's this whole tradition of that in, in, in Old Testament literature that we call wisdom literature. So the wisdom psalm, right? Very first psalm, Psalm 1. You do good, good stuff's going to happen. You do bad, bad stuff's going to happen to you. Deuteronomy 26 to 28, there's this series of blessings and curses. You love God, blessed will you be in your house, blessed will you be in your field, blessed will you be, be in the fruit of your womb, blessed will you be in the marketplace, a whole chapter full. And then if you do not serve God, then cursed will you be in all of those places, and he adds another chapter full of yet more curses to you for not loving God. So over and over again, this kind of simple, straightforward teaching, if you do good stuff, good stuff's going to happen. If you do bad stuff, bad stuff's going to happen. If you're righteous, you're going to be wealthy. If you're poor, you're going to be, if you're sorry, you're going to be poor, right? So uh, it's there, and we all know at a very root level there's something true about that. There is something true about it, right? If, um, uh, if, It doesn't take a great deal of observation of our own habits or the habits of people around us to realize that habits bear fruit. And we can draw some fairly simple lines between certain habits and the things that come of those habits. If we're wasteful in our expenditures, we're not going to have a lot in the savings account. If we uh, refuse to work or we don't work with integrity or we're dishonest, very, very possible there's not going to be a whole lot in the savings account or much, much worse, right? We know that these things are true and the wisdom literature bears witness to that. This is a fundamental way in which the world works. It simply does. It simply does. Semicolon. 
not period. One of the problems in Christian teaching, especially in the United States, is that we put a period there rather than a semicolon. And Scripture doesn't put a period there. It puts a semicolon there. So, for example, even in uh, the book of Proverbs, let's go back and look at chapter 11, verse 1. A false balance is an abomination to the Lord, but an accurate weight is His delight. And it doesn't take you a long time to realize what's going on there, right? As a matter of fact, I found this morning in a quick skim of the book of Proverbs at least three different texts about false balances, right? A false balance is an easy, cheap way. There's another, another text over in Amos chapter 8, the same thing, where the, where the prophet says, you people can't wait for Sabbath to get over so you can get back to the marketplace with your blasted false scales. So the false scales obviously representing a way in which those who have a mechanism of power or a mechanism of measurement or a mechanism of commerce that are using the mechanism of commerce to deprive others of what is equitably theirs and take more than their share uh, for themselves. Or chapter 11, verse uh, 24. Chapter 11, verse 24. Some give freely, yet grow all the richer. Others withhold what is due and only suffer want. A generous person will be enriched, and one who gives water will get water. The people curse those who hold back grain, but a blessing is on the head of those who sell it. There's another kind of nuance to the conversation, right? Um, so that it's important, I think, that in all of these conversations, both Old Testament and New Testament alike, that we not, not fall prey to what some would call the logic of scarcity. Logic of scarcity is that if if you have, I can't have, or there's a fixed pie, and if I get this big a slice, it means everybody else's slice has to be smaller. Instead, there is this sort of strange presupposition throughout Scripture that in the practice of generosity to those who are in need, there is a greater sort of social abundance in which we all may participate. You know, the, the whole story of Jesus feeding of the 5,000 is this profound sort of bearing witness to the fact that there's more than meets the eye. And we do not have to live in this sort of state of constant anxiety about not having enough, but that we can, in practicing, tending to those who have needs, ensure that or at least, I should say it this way, make space for the possibility that more may have what they need. Or look at uh, chapter 14, verse 31. Those who oppress the poor insult their maker, but those who are kind to the needy honor him. Chapter 17, 5. 
Those who mock the poor insult their maker. Those who are glad at calamity will not go unpunished. Or chapter 19, verse 17. Whoever is kind to the poor lends to the Lord and will be repaid in full. So, let's back up a second and kind of get kind of overarching view here just a second. You remember how uh, at the beginning of the semester we kept going back to that Proverbs about um, don't answer a fool according to his folly. You'll be made a fool yourself. Or answer a fool according to his folly. Otherwise he will be wise in his own mind. Those verses are right next to each other. right? So which is it? Oh great wise one, proverb writer, answer the fool or don't answer the fool. And the notion is, well, it depends. If you're wise enough, you'll figure out which one it should be with the fool that you're dealing with, right? <laughs> Similarly, in, in the, in, with regard to the notion of flourishing, especially with regard to the notion of flourishing with regard to wealth, is this notion that, um, yeah, if you work hard, all things being equal, all things being fair, all people starting at the same place with the same possibilities and the same opportunities and the same capabilities and the same education and the same training and equitable circumstances, all things being equal, everybody ought to come out about the same place. But Scripture is wise enough to know that the world doesn't operate that way. I... Um, I've, I've, I've worked hard in my life. Um, I'm, I'm so, I may be so conceited to think I've worked really hard in my life. But there's a friend of mine uh, who cleans toilets and sweeps floors and takes care of the facilities where our students eat. He does that 40 hours a week and he does a really good job and he works really hard. And then he works another 40 hours a week doing the same thing at another Christian university in town. And he works really hard. And I don't work that hard. And I make a lot more money than does he. It's not about work. He's working a lot harder. And you might say, well, why didn't he take advantage of the education? Because he got because he's an immigrant and because um, he's got young kids that he has the immediate need he has to pay attention to getting the hourly wage to take care of feeding his kids and providing for his kids. And he doesn't have the opportunity to, to take time to go get an education even though possibly he might be able to if he had the time. He's working 80 hours a week. What Scripture does is it invites us to, to, to stop being overly simplistic and open our eyes to the complexities of the social, social situation in which we find ourselves. Um, but, it, but probably, I don't know, sometime in the last half century, there was in Roman Catholic theology the rise of what we call liberation theology. And liberation theology especially came out of South America where the theologians were being especially mindful of the travails and the difficulties of the poor in South America. 
and in their writing and reflecting upon the story of Scripture and writing upon reflecting upon the travails of the poor, they came up with this phrase called the preferential option for the poor. And as they started reflecting upon Scripture, they made this contention that was very disputed and made a lot of people angry. But they make this claim that if, as you read the Bible, what you find is that there is what they call a preferential option for the poor. That doesn't mean that God loves the poor more than God loves the rich. It just means that God is mindful of the fact that the rich already have a whole lot of options that the poor don't. And thus the concern to provide for the poor some options that they don't have. Does that make sense? So, we see this sort of warning slash preference slash teaching in various ways and in various places. I mentioned the prophets, and before we go to the New Testament, if you've got your Bible, slip to Amos quickly. Amos was one of the 8th century, one of the famous 8th century prophets, 8th century B.C. prophets, and what's remarkable about Amos is Amos is writing at a time in which Israel, Amos was from the southern kingdom in Judah, he gets called by God to go up to the northern kingdom and to preach to the northern kingdom in Israel. And as is often the case when the southerners go up and straighten out the northerners, it didn't go too well because the northerners are too arrogant to understand the wisdom of the southerner. And that's precisely what happens in Amos, right? He goes up and he begins to preach and proclaim and they get very angry with him and they're ready to stone him. Um, but what Amos, Amos does is he, he is preaching at a time in which the northern kingdom is at the height of its wealth and power. It's one of the times of some of the greatest wealth and power of the northern kingdom. In the middle of the 8th century, about 750 B.C. And he goes up and he looks at this stuff and he pronounces judgment upon them, the ju coming judgment of God, because of the ways, and not because of the fact that they are wealthy, but because of the fact that, of how they are wealthy and their refusal to be mindful of what he calls the ruin of Joseph. They're not being mindful of the poor. So look at texts like Amos chapter 4. Hear this word, you cows of Bashan. Now, yes, he is being sexist. He is speaking to the women. And he is calling them cows. And he's calling them cows of Bashan, which is the worst part. Bashan was a very verdant, fertile plain where they would send the cows before what? Any guesses? Before their slaughter. So he's looking at the women and he said, listen, listen up, you cows of Bashan. So he's already in trouble, right? <laughs> who are on Mount Samaria, who oppress the poor, who crush the needy, who say, and now, he get, now he's mocking them, who, who say to their husbands, bring me something to drink. The Lord God has sworn by His holiness, the time is surely coming upon you when they shall take you away with hooks. Even the last of you with fish hooks through breaches in the wall you shall leave each one straight ahead. What he's got is a picture of being deported into exile where they've taken big, whether literally or figuratively it's not quite so clear, but the notion is that they've taken big 
big old meat hooks, big fish hooks, and run it through the abdomens of the women, got them chained together, carrying them off, stripped of their finery, into exile. Well, he's just getting warmed up with that. Look at chapter 5, verse 12. I know how many are your transgressions, how great are your sins, who afflict the righteous, who take a bribe and push aside the needy in the gate. Chapter 6, verse 1. Alas for those who are at ease in Zion and for those who feel secure on Mount Samaria, the notables of the first of the nations to whom the house of Israel resorts. And he's basically saying, go look at this nation who thought they could never fall and look how they fell. And go look at these people who thought they could never fall in their power and their wealth and their might and look what's happened to them. And then he's verse 4. Alas for those who lie on beds of ivory and lounge on their couches and eat lambs from the flock and calves from the stall, who sing idle songs to the sound of the harp and like David <coughs> improvise on instruments of music, who drink wine from bowls and anoint themselves with the finest oils but are not grieved over the ruin of Joseph. Therefore they shall now be the first to go into exile and the revelry of the loungers shall pass away. You know, this is not an apologetic against instrumental music, right? It's not an apologetic to be teetotalers. It's that you're all so caught up, he's saying, in your concerts, and you're all so caught up, not just in having a glass of wine, but in drinking from bowls of wine, that you're blind to the ruin of Joseph. You're blind to it all. Um, quickly, chapter 8. Hear this, you that trample the needy and bring to ruin the poor of the land, saying, When will the noon moon be over so that we may sell grain and the Sabbath that we may offer wheat for sale? And then he goes back into the messing with the balances and the scales there. Well, again, there's a whole lot more that we could look at in the prophets, but very quickly let's, let's talk about some of the other texts in the New Testament we've been working with. You know the stuff out of Matthew. But here's one, uh, a reading of the Sermon on the Mount that typically doesn't get noted. But in the Lord's Prayer, what's, what's the alternative reading to forgive us our trespasses? Yes. Forgive us our debts. There's, a lot, there, there's been a lot of kind of study to indicate that um, that's a better reading in the context of Jesus. Especially, for example, if you go over read it in, in light of something like Luke chapter 4, and then you see what Jesus does in Luke chapter 6 with the so-called Sermon on the Plain, where it's got a very explicit economic, very explicit economic agenda in what happens in Luke 4 and Luke 6. Because debt is the primary mechanism, especially in Jesus' day, Debt is the primary mechanism of social control. So in Luke 4 he says, uh, freedom to the cap captives. Um, you don't have in Jesus' day a sort of criminal justice system that has this very expansive list of things for which we'll send you to prison. Instead, most likely reason you would be in jail in Jesus' day is what? Is debt. Debtor's prison, right? Um, and that's true for many, many centuries thereafter. And here Jesus says, this is the day that people are going to be announced free from prison. 
And then he says, you're going to pray this kind of prayer. Forgive us our debts as we forgive those who have debts against us. And you'll remember that, at the, that, that the only thing, the only quid pro quo, always like it when I can pull out a little Latin, even if I don't necessarily know what it means. No, I, I, I do know that this one means this. Quid pro quo means if you do this, you get this, right? The only quid pro quo pointed to in the Lord's Prayer is you forgiving other people's debts so your debts can be forgiven. Again, because debt is central to social power. There's this fascinating book I've been slowly getting my way through called Debt, A History of the First 5,000 Years. And, 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 and the, whole, the whole book is about the ways in which debt has been a perennial mechanism of power and a, a perennial problem of social control and the, this author says, uh, pretty convincingly, that if you look at things like Jubilee in the Old Testament, the forgiveness of, of stuff, return of land every 50 years, or release of debts every seven years, that every society, or lots of ancient Near Eastern societies, including our own with things like bankruptcy laws, have to begin to figure out how to do that kind of stuff because what happens when you have increasingly disparity between rich and poor and control of the poor through mechanisms of debt is that the society is ultimately going to get blown to smithereens. It will not stand. It's a fascinating kind of book. So you see these kinds of struggles being played at in Scripture in very realistic ways. So Jesus there in the Sermon on the Mount Forgive us our debts as we forgive others our debtors. And then, of course, he's going to say, you can't serve God in money. You can't serve God in money. This is um, it's tough. That's what he says. You can't serve God in money. And then he says, where your treasure is, that's where your heart will be. He doesn't say, um, put your heart other than where your treasure is. He says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be. Or then James, that we've been working out of, he'll say to the rich, he says, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. For the wages that you have held back from your laborers in the fields is crying out against you. Yes, sir. Just a little bit louder for me. Two 
as the country makes it well the state legislature changed the work comp law. So you can only get you can't get rid of the fifty two weeks on the thirteen weeks. So people that get hurt on the back don't get the thirteen weeks of benefit, so they have to come on. So what I see is, you know, the government the government Yeah, I, I think that yes, yeah. So, so as I understand the question, we we see increasing, we see a number of signs of increasing social policy with a profound impact upon the poor. Right. And, 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 it's, and it's, not, it's, it's not a racial thing. It's, it's just poor people. And it's affecting poor people significantly. Mm -hmm. uh, of all of all Yeah. I think that... Um, I, I would I would strongly suggest uh, that if if any of you have never done any kind of just basic reading upon disparity of wealth, uh, this was going to be one of the practices that I suggested. Just start just Google disparity of wealth and start you know look at look at some good sources. You know you can you generally seem to be able to trust the Wall Street Journal to talk pretty good about money, and go look at the Wall Street Journal stuff on disparity of wealth. And that, that um, there's, there's apparently, for example, 62 families that own about 50% now of the world's wealth. And then for about the next 20% of the world's wealth, or for those, most all of us in the room. Um, if, if you're, if, you know, in this one I was looking at this morning, if, if your net worth is between 100 grand and a million dollars, which means if you got a house and you've had it for any number of years, um, you're in the next. We are in the next like twenty percent. Um, and which means that there's a huge amount of people at the bottom uh, that have next to nothing. And these sorts of policies and practices, they they will yield serious social implications. I don't think there's any way you can, because that, that's the other kind of flip of the proverb thing, right? You can look at social practices and you see that they do yield certain fruit and it does bring about social consequences. So I, th I think that your question is, is very pertinent and very important. That doesn't mean that social policy is ever a simple matter, right? I know enough about social policy to know I don't know a whole lot about it and I know that it's very complicated. Uh, and they can have lots of unintended consequences, right? But nonetheless, we see this increasing gap and disparity that's very important. So let me quickly point to a couple of, couple of practices. Um, here's one I want to suggest. To, if we've got CEOs and CFOs and COOs in the room, or we have directors of marketing in the room, um, Forget the social policy debate about rising minimum wage just a second and just ask, what about the minimum wage that you're responsible for? You know? One, I'm glad he's not in here so I can give this example. 
one of the things I loved about Randy Lowry's first year at Lipscomb was that he came in and ticked off a lot of people because he said, we're not having anybody working around here that doesn't have a living wage in Nashville. And, I, and, and, and so as I would suggest that COOs and the CFOs and the CEOs, that's a very simple, not simple, it is simple, but it's hard, potentially. But a profound sort of social practice that I think James would be hollering at us about, that Amos would be hollering at us about. Or um, one of the things that Lars always pushed us on, even when we, when, we, we, when we did fall at the level of poor as graduate students, is she said, I don't care, we're still giving at least 10%. Uh, there have been some years we haven't we haven't been able to do that, um, but she's always pushed us on at least that. You know, this is not net but gross, which was always a killer. You know, really, Laura, we have to do that? Yes, ten percent gross, right? And and keep working at it and try to see how we could do more. What do you think the ratio is between intelligent people and stupid? <laughs> I dare not try to answer. <laughs> But tell me, tell me what's behind that question. What's behind it is, is that you have some people that are very intelligent and they develop a product or whatever, whatever, and they become wealthy. And then you've got a lot of people that just naturally don't have that IQ. Okay? So, what is the balance there? You talk about credit and debt. A lot of people run into poor people that knew that they needed it. Well, let's open it up. We, let, let's take five minutes without me giving any more commentary. Let's hear from people from what, what you heard uh, always, or what you want to give back. Yeah, I always define rich as anyone that has more money than me. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, but I was texting you a message here. So uh, years ago, I read, it, I read in Richard Foster's book, Money, Sex, and Power. He said something to that's a long time ago, too, he wrote it. But he said, pretty much, that the fact that you're able to buy this book puts you in the 1% wealthiest people in the world. And so, for me, I tend to think other people have more. Uh, and, uh, that's all we have in Yeah. Yeah, and doing doing some pretty simple. Um, there, there is on Wall Street Journal a um, rank your own uh, income vis-a-vis -vis other Americans, um, and it's it's very enlightening 
that's another place you might go check just to see where things are. I, I don't know if I heard uh, what was being said fully, but uh, I think intelligence is probably one of the worst ways to measure who should or who you would expect to be wealthy or not. Um, the family that a person's born into has a much, much greater impact on likelihood of having wealth than IQ level. That, I mean, I could say a lot more, but just Apparently, emotional intelligence is much better for wealth generating than IQ as well. So there's lots of variables about what's going on there, and social position and social power and so forth. So until Friday, I worked for a publicly traded company. I'm moving on to a different job now. But one of the best things that um, can y'all hear Scott in the back? So one one great thing that um, public companies are being required or at least encouraged to do. Um, is this say on pay regulation that's coming into effect. And so, and, and what it requires a public company to do is to compare the the, the sort of highest level C, CEO, C-suite pay with the sort of average pay for the people uh, working at, on the front lines of the job. And it uh, in, in public companies, it's always shamefully disparate. Um, and I'll, I'll agree with Tracy that uh, no, going through, you know, working at a, a company, I work in the, have worked in the corporate office uh, close to that C-level job, but going and mingling with the people that are making the money that, that trickles up and, and ultimately trickles out to the shareholders, those are the smart, those are really intelligent people, really dedicated people making a tiny fraction of what the C-suite is making. And so I love this say on pay regulation because I think it's going to use shame, frankly, to hopefully adjust out some of that disparity. And that's certainly my prayer. Uh, but, you know, there's, I've, I've heard people say before things like, some of us were born on third base and we think we hit a triple. Um, and, and I, so, you know, I, I, I do think that the proverbs are true and I do think that hard work are true except for when they're not and that hard work can benefit us but a lot of us were born on third base um, but hopefully you know some of that open dialogue and, and things like the say on pay can close the gap a bit 30 seconds Logan so I was gonna uh, I, I'm with Tracy probably uh, more than I'm with, with any uh, anybody on that issue but I think what you're saying is uh, well even if intelligence uh, means something rather than how you're born, I think that still begs us to ask what our responsibility is. There's the, old, the I think it's Latin, uh, noblesse oblige, where, where the, the people who are uh, gifted either financially or emotionally or with wisdom uh, presumably have some responsibility for those who don't. And so I think you're asking us to, to ask ourselves what is our responsibility to, to those uh, who's whose lot in life, either by their own decisions or by decisions by others, uh, is somehow uh, been less, uh, less fruitful than their own. Thank you. Let's do this for this week. We'll pick back up with this next week, but what I would like to ask you to do is uh, ask questions, argue with yourself, and argue with people around you in loving ways about these questions. And just ask 
a lot of questions this week. Ask about your own privilege. Ask about uh, other people's lack thereof. Uh, ask about your own effort. Ask about other people's effort. Um, ask about uh, possibilities that you have that others may not have. And just ask questions and be curious and go look at some of these, some the way some of these debates are had and maybe educate yourself even some more wherever, what level you're at on these questions. And let's pick back up and discuss it some more. You got, would you like to discuss this more next week? It seems to be helpful to me. All right, so let's do that again next week. Thank you. Blessings.